Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley talking to you on episode 109 of the Criterion Reflections podcast. This is the second part of a two-part series on the Lone Wolf and Cub films, released in 1972, 73, and 74. We're kind of, again, avoiding or ignoring my usual rules of sticking to a chronological timeline as we kind of do a summary coverage of these six uh, exceptional films. Very interesting uh, samurai sagas. Uh, we've kind of done a lot of the background in episode or part one of the, of the series. So if you haven't listened to part one, I really recommend that you go back to that and just kind of get catch up because we're kind of right in the middle of the stream here. Uh, same cast as uh, the last time. So let's just go ahead and introduce our guests and then we will get right into talking about the last three films in the series. So uh, beginning with Jason Beamish. Hello, Jason. How's it going? Doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. Now, you're Excellent. not a sports guy, are you? It's on in the background because... <laughs> yes. Today's Jason, the day. Today's the day, yes. Yeah, I, watch, I watch about three or four sports games a year. Okay. And this sometimes is one of them. And if you hear any outbursts, um, <laughs> uh, that's what happened. Sure. Well, uh, for, for people who might be wondering what that's all about, uh, there there is a rivalry much more heated than Ogami Ito and the Yagyu clan, and that is the Ohio State versus Michigan football game. Uh, I think you and I are on opposite sides of the divide there. Is that correct? You're an Ohio guy, and I'm a, from that state up north. <laughs> I live in Ohio, uh, yes. so yes, that's that's as accurate as it gets. Very, very understandable. So, so uh, yeah, we will be gentlemanly and, and follow the code of honor as we uh, <laughs> as we pursue our mutual interest in this conversation. Yes, of so, course. good to be back with you there. Yeah, yes, you bet. It, it is. It is a big game, and it's a pretty suspenseful one. We're kind of getting late into the fourth quarter, so yeah, I may be just a teeny bit distracted here. But <laughs> setting all that aside, let's get the rest of our guests introduced. Uh, Richard Doyle, how's it going, Richard? Hello, it's going good. Now, you're not a sports guy, are you? <laughs> no, not these days. I'm not. But plus, I'm Canadian, yeah. so I wouldn't really. Yes, that's right. You're uh, you're one of our two neutral parties in all of this, uh, but it's good to have you back. And then finally, our third guest here, David Seeley, way over on the other side of the pond in the UK. David, Hello, how's it going? How are you doing? <laughs> all right. Well, maybe one of these days we'll record. I don't know. Are, do you in, into soccer or any of that kind of stuff or any sports? I, so? No, I'm I'm proper nerd, hardcore nerd, you know, film. Just a pure and movie guy. And, yeah. yeah, and cool. stuff like that. So. Well, that's how I console myself in those years when Michigan doesn't do quite so well. But I had a son who went to the U of M, so that uh, definitely created a little bit more stakes in the in the rivalry for me. But uh, that's fair. That's the last I'll say about that. Okay, so thanks for bearing with us, all you non-sports listeners out there. As we get into it, we talking about um, three films, uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, kind of the, the the prefix to all of the titles, but the three films are Baby Cart in Peril, Baby Cart in the Land of Demons, and White Heaven in Hell. Uh, Baby Cart in Peril is the first one we're going to talk about here. Uh, it was released on December 30th, 1972, right at the tail end of a year, which saw the release of the first three Lone Wolf and Cub movies, uh, Sword of Vengeance, uh, Baby Cart at the River Styx, and Baby Cart to Hades. Um, so, yeah, maybe we should just kind of get the conversation rolling as we kind of pick it up where we left off. Um, Jason, I remember you had said at the, at the kind of end of the first episode that film three, um, 
baby cart to Hades kind of felt like the end of a trilogy. And, and I think we all kind of concurred with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here we see the series continuing as, mm-hmm. uh, you know, lone wolf and cub, the uh, wandering Ronan and his, you know, three-year-old son uh, who'd lost his mother, you know, before he really had a chance to know her, continue their wandering adventures across the Japanese countryside. Uh, he still remains an assassin for hire. Uh, there's 500 Rio uh, that uh, has to be exchanged to him for him to do the job. And uh, there's also a requirement to tell the secrets and the, the reasons for this particular assassination. So the formula is intact here, uh, but for the first time we have a new director. Um, and Richard, do you know much about this director? I'm going to just kind of yeah. take a stab at it, that, that you may have something to say about uh, uh, his I- name here. Go ahead. I do. It's, uh, if I've got the name right, Buichi Saito. Um, he was actually uh, Wakayama's first choice to do the, this series. Okay. He was asked to do the series because Wakayama had worked with him previously on a film that was the last in a in a series uh, called the Wicked Priest series. Mm-hmm. But he was busy, uh, so that's why Misumi was offered the job. So uh, he was a former assistant director to Ozu at one point, And um, he sort of rose to prominence doing a series of films for Nakatsu called the Rambling Guitarist series mm-hmm. that had a guitar strumming hero. Okay. Was was it a martial arts type of thing or? Um, it's what they kind of, I'm trying to remember what they called it at Nakatsu, but it was a kind of action film. It wasn't really, it was an action film that was meant to appeal to both the Japanese and the Western market. So it was kind of your guitar strumming fighting hero, but not, not very martial artsy and like fisticuffs kind of yeah. a tough guy who can also yeah. sing and do his thing with the guitar yeah. <laughs> okay yeah. got it um yeah similar in that vein of like yeah. the kind of wandering hero who's, who's sort of just like a like on a road an endless road trip and goes from adventure to mm-hmm. adventure so there is that similarity i would have thought yeah, yeah. Once you've got the basic premise set up, I mean, it feels very episodic. I mean, haven't we seen lots of, you know, even Western TV along the same lines? Once the kind of premise is going there, the character gets out there, finds a interesting variation on on the theme, and then we're off and running here. Um, so, yeah, you know, the last time we talked a little bit about the artistry of Misumi and kind of his... Um, uh, you know, somewhat, somewhat poetic and, and uh, really faithful to the history type of style, uh, a little bit more meditative, a little bit more reflective. And we will be talking about another Misumi film in, in episode five, uh, or the film after this one here. But boy, uh, yeah, Baby Cart in Peril definitely has a reputation among those who've gotten familiar with the series. This is the one that's seen as a bit more garish, a little bit more you know, purely sensationalistic. I think Criterion calls it the most distinctly lowbrow <laughs> entry in the series, which is like, well, that's that's one way of putting it. Uh, yeah, who, who'd like to just kind of give us a little synopsis or maybe, you know, what, what stood out to you about this particular film? It sure starts off with a bang. I, I will say that. The opening sequence is like, hello, <laughs> and, and away we go. Um, I, I'll, I'll take this one. Sure, I, I, I quite like this one. I would say, oh, yeah. along with the, the sort of the second film in the series, this one's kind of uh, one of my favorites. Actually, I think it's quite uh, quite entertaining, and it's got a good little story. Maybe it's the lowbrow that appeals to me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's certainly lots of beautiful sights to see in it. Um, the 
<laughs> That's one way of putting it. <laughs> um, I, I guess I could just briefly go over the story. I guess it, it's essentially like a, um, well, there's kind of two stories going on. One is sort of a revenge story about a young lady who uh, was victimized uh, by a uh, another samurai who has quite an interesting bag of uh, tricks uh, that he uses to distract people. Uh, and she has um, gone and got herself a tattoo uh, on her body that, uh, that of, of demons, which I think probably to Japanese viewers, they would probably have more resonance that the, the, they would know what these particular yeah. creatures were somewhere i read it described as a mountain hag so it's not even not just a demon or a ghost figure but from a particular type of topography or you know uh, a landscape kind of if you're up in the mountains this is the kind of you know scary female personification you might run into yeah yeah and that's yeah, on her I back so. right? I, I think there is some sort of significance to it which might be lost on western viewers a little bit but uh, mm -hmm. you know unless they're really up on japanese sort of folklore and things like that but um the uh, but she has a tattoo of this creature on her back and uh, sort of suckling at her breast so the so she has this tattoo and then uh she uses that as a way of sort of distracting her opponents and she's gone on this quest to sort of get revenge uh and she's going around and, and uh, uh having you know uh, sort of dispatching various uh, people from this clan right uh, she, she'd also been trained as kind of a sword mistress as i, I guess yeah. how they describe her she, so she's a, a beautiful courtesan who's been trained in, in handling weaponry almost kind of a, an indulgence or a trinket for a powerful uh lord uh to have a beautiful woman sort of a concubine uh, but I think those tattoos that you mentioned, David, you know, again, one on her back and one on her breast, I think that character is called a Kentaro. It's like a little baby who's kind of grabbing right for the nipple there. Um, but but her technique involves revealing her breasts um, at the moment of conflict, like in a sword battle as a, as a way of distracting her attacker. Uh, very mm -hmm. similar to the flaming sword technique that you described um, as well, where, you know, he, he has this sword that appears to be on fire. He warns his, uh, uh, opponent not to stare at the sword, look into my eyes. And this kind of hypnotic multi-eyed, you know, swirling effect, you know, kind of takes over giving the viewer that sense of, you know, being, you know, kind of, um, put in a trance there. Uh, and of course that's, that's the fatal distraction that leads to imminent death in in the heat of battle so and but we don't get really any of that background at the beginning the movie like i say it literally just is like there's this beautiful woman with this incredible tattoo rips her her kimono open and you know slices a few guys up and it's just like bammo just <laughs> you yeah. haven't even had a chance to dig into your popcorn yet you're just warming up the seat and and we're off to the races yeah and it's kind of whoa you know, yeah. like this. Yeah. So it's a great beginning. And yeah, as you say, like through the course of the film, um, you know, I don't want to spoil it too much for people who may yeah. uh, not have seen it yet, but through the course of the film, we learn a bit more about her and her background. And uh, Ito is um, hired to uh, kill her, basically. 
So well, you go, yeah, she's gone rogue. You know, she's she's way yeah. out of place in this rigidly, you know, hierarchical society. Everybody has their function, and if you don't perform it, you're no longer fit to live. She's clearly violated, you know, transgressed all of the boundaries. Um, but that's, I think, what makes her one of the more compelling support characters in the whole series. And yeah, I'd like to kind of hear you know, Richard and Jason. What do you guys think about this? Just that opening sequence because I really feel it's a pretty key piece to kind of get the movie in motion. It's. I think she she's an interesting character, and she's a little different from the main female characters in the earlier films, in that she's mm-hmm. not dazzled by Ito. No, no. You know, she's pretty. She pretty much stays on her independent. Uh, lane like for the entire movie even mm-hmm. accepting her fate rather gratefully when she's when it when it comes to that right because the whole subplot is kind of a mission of vengeance you know she's and it, also the other key piece is that after she vanquishes a samurai she will cut off his top knot oh, yeah. uh, to, to add the final disgrace because now not only has he been defeated by a woman but his top knot is gone so it's not even suitable for any of the ceremonial honors that, you know, are sort of in this culture, you know, how you die is like almost more important than anything that you do while you're alive, right? Can, if you die the right way, then your your fame is assured and, and you're fulfilling your destiny. Even if you've had an exemplary life but have a shameful death, it, it's all a waste. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's, it feels like a very backwards way of looking at things. But again, this is the depiction of this kind of feudal culture that I think is one of the really key pieces that I enjoy so much about this series. Jason, what, you got a reaction to that opener? Well, I, uh, similar to everybody else, um, you clearly is there on purpose and just to really kind of pull you in as quickly as possible in a, like a, almost like a James Bond type fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, but yeah. this was also the same era as like the, the pink films that we briefly mentioned last episode. Um, where the sex and violence um, over at, was it this studio or the other studio? I don't remember. Uh, main studio. Yeah. No, oh, thank you. Um, those are so incredibly popular that it does not surprise me at all that they would want to throw that in mm-hmm. as just a way to make it still have it well-made, but also in a, in one way, make it a little sleazier. Um, than it otherwise would have needed to be. So I, I mean, it was, it was good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I, th- I think it is, it's, it's, it's pretty powerful, you know, uh, mm-hmm. flash the boobs and prepare to die. <laughs> it's just kind of like, all right, that's, that is the, uh, you yeah, know, that, 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 and that's kind of the, the opening act here as we get into baby cart in peril. Mm-hmm. Um, we also start to see a, a device that's used in the, in the next film as well, where Daigoro, the, the cub, the, the, the little child, kind of goes off and has his little adventure there. Um, yeah, who'd like to kind of give us a little synopsis of, of that whole piece uh, as he kind of wanders away from his father and kind of has his own little subplot adventure there, rather than just being a pure sidekick? Yeah, I'll, I'll go. Um he encounters uh, a samurai who is who he sort of instantaneously recognizes that he has what does he call them like death eyes or something yeah it's it, there's a certain japanese word for it but it's like the gaze of a of a veteran warrior that's seen and inflicted a lot of death and is 
utterly impassable, unperturbed by danger. You know, he's just kind of like, that the best you got kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Degaro wanders into a field where the farmers are burning the stubble after the rice harvest. And Degaro gets caught in the flames and this samurai is like, well, man, I should really help him, but I'd like to see what happens. (laughs) 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 And is impressed that Daikaro does not panic. And uh, he he thinks he dies in the flame and he doesn't. He's sort of buried himself under some debris Mm -hmm. to protect himself from the flame. So he challenge like sort of confronts Daigoro and is like like trying to see what he's like to and then he notices that he makes us move with his sword and Daigoro mimics his dad's sword yeah. dance and he with realizes, a stick yeah <laughs> right. realizes who the son must be and that yeah he has a background against um with Ito himself he's the son of Retsudo the bad guy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he he was originally the, the challenger for the for the executioner post. And we mentioned this in the first show. Yeah. I think I brought that up and I I didn't realize I was committing a massive spoiler (laughs) for anybody who's following in sequence there. But, but yeah, I I thought that was also really crucial to get more of um, Ito's origin story, Um, you know, and why is the Yagyu clan so hell bent on, you know, getting not, not just the prestige of the Shogun executioner role, but also, uh, the sense that they were deprived of something that was rightfully theirs. But yeah, go ahead. I just kind of had to jump in and clarify my semi blunder from last episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so he had, he had been, he had been trying to get the role of executioner and enduring his, his uh, demonstration of his ability acts inadvertently pointed his sword directly at the Shogun, which was a giant faux pas. Mm-hmm. And Ito himself had stepped in the way to sort of break that accidental threat and that's why ito got the job instead so Mm -hmm. he has a big grudge against ito uh he's supposed to have been dead but ritsudo faked his son's death that's right yeah another really critical scene right to me that was up on par with the beginning of of the first film this very solemn you know execution of a very young child and again i also spoke in the previous episode about just the 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 intensity and uh, of, of loyalty that had been indoctrinated into these warriors where if your boss says it's time to die just a quick nod of the head and all right it's over you know and and again i i i would still like to know more like how much of this was like historically true that people are that ready to just to give up their life because what ends up happening is the uh, kind of a he, what he's called the face maker. He, he has the ability to make very lifelike, realistic masks, kind of a, an old Mission Impossible type of trick there. And uh, because not only will the father, the elder Yaku, you know, proclaim to everybody, especially to the Shogun, that his son died by seppuku uh, after the disgrace of losing this, this tournament, um, he's also going to send the head as evidence of, of this killing. And so he calls out his master mask maker says make yourself up to look like my son he does that little visual sleight of hand and then he goes out there and just solemnly sits down and lets himself get beheaded it's like whoa now that's commitment (laughs) that's leaving it all on the field right after a beautiful little hypothetical trap like you'd die for us wouldn't you yeah, of course yes. I would. Well, well, yes. well, we've got news for you then. <laughs> <laughs> this is your big opportunity. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
Yeah. So, so, you know, you, you said it sets up as a pretty big chief rival. I mean, they've met before Ito bested him in the earlier matchup. And now you get the sense that this is going to, you know, lead to another big showdown at the end, which it sort of does and sort of doesn't. Um, well, the next thing that happens is the, um, oh, the Owari clan. Yeah. Okay. Who, who can uh, fill us in on the plot development after? Well, well, I could uh, say that um, um, Ito uh, uh, goes to see, uh, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember his, uh, the, the mm-hmm. name of the clan, but there's a, um, like a, a sort of a society of street performers. It's sort of like a class of people in this mm-hmm. sort of era of Japan that, they, they're they're sort of ostracized and they've they're kind of developed their own sort of community and they have a leader and uh, Ito goes to visit him uh, because he might have some information about the whereabouts of this young lady that he's yeah. trying to find and um, uh, because she used to be a member of that community right uh, right then um as as ito visits him uh, it transpires that um it's her father that this man is uh, is her father and he actually gives her location he tells ito where he can find her mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and i think that's just another key piece of it so, so she's been the the courtesan of a of a powerful figure uh, she's been a street performer she's skilled with the weaponry and and even that that tattooing sequence which i think is again one of the more kind of erotic you know uh, scenes and, and moments within the entire series uh as she's getting this tattoo uh, this is again back towards the beginning when ito is is uh, interviewing her and, and kind of gathering information on his next job uh her 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 uh, strength, you know, kind of her her grit and accepting and taking on these two really massive tattoos, and you know, especially in very sensitive parts of her body, especially the one on the front. Uh, again, that just sort of sets her up as this extremely strong female uh, archetype, this kind of vengeful, uh, but also very beautiful and desirable, you know, uh, nemesis, this kind of man killer. Yeah, kind of like you said, it kind of falls into some of the the popular tastes uh, of uh, somewhat exploitative cinema of the time. But again, I, I found that character and just kind of her whole development um, pretty impressive. And then when she does finally meet her end, which is more like the middle of the film uh, rather than maybe towards the conclusion, as you might have thought, she seems almost relieved to have been dispatched. You know, she she committed her her mission of vengeance. There's a pretty good showdown where she's able to, again, use the breast-bearing technique to take out her her enemy, uh, the guy who had uh, actually defeated her and raped her rather than killing her uh, to begin with. Uh, she survives long enough to settle that score, but then once uh, Ito commis- carries out his commission, uh, I think she's just happy to leave this world and, and put all of her pain and suffering behind her. Mm-hmm. And there's quite you find that Ito really comes to respect her by, yes. by the end because as he learns more about the backstory and how how she came to um, be in the situation that she's in, I think he he learns quite a lot of respect for her, and yeah. I think in a way uh, regrets having to um, carry out. But of course, you know because of their honor and his commitment to do something, he carries through with with the act, even though I think yeah. uh, deep down he doesn't really want to. 
Well, he gives her an honorable death. I mean, he even uses those words, at least in the English translation of them. And I, as I said earlier, I think how you die in, in this world was was really was really critical. And so, whereas he will, you know, without a blink, dispatch dozens of of, of flunky ordinary swordsmen. And he's certainly killed women before and and after in this series. But uh, you know, this one here shows a little bit more of. Um, Ito's nobility, his his willingness to, you know, understand. I won't say empathize. <laughs> I won't think of empathy as a real key character trait. But he he does have a sense of recognition for for those who have been wronged, the, the, for the victims of injustice that uh, that society you know um, perpetrates on so many people, uh, women, poor people, etc. Yeah, and that's why um, yeah. she's quite an interesting character because she's someone who sort of gains, asserts her independence in a society yeah, yeah. where women very much would not uh, be able to do that. And so in a sense, she kind of breaks free of those those structures of society and, and becomes uh, sort of an independent person. And I think that it's, it's quite interesting, the breastfeeding motif, because there's a scene with Daigoro, uh, they, they meet in a you know, there's, uh, is it an inn or something, or just there's yeah. like a, a like a sort of a, a natural hot spring, sort of hot yeah. spring or something mm-hmm. that they stop at, and she's there, and and Daigoro, you know, um, quite naturally becomes quite fixated on her breast. So that <laughs> well, like he's probably not the only one at that particular <laughs> moment. You know, it's quite rightly, I think everyone gets quite fixated on that uh, that image, and yeah. the the. Um, the, but he becomes quite fascinated because obviously he lost his mother at quite a young age. So that, that whole uh, sort of experience of his fascination with um, just these, these sort of maternal figures mm-hmm. kind of happens yeah. all through the, certainly in the last few uh, films. That, and I uh, think it's, again, it's another, it's another strength of this, of this franchise is that you never completely lose fact side of the fact that that Daigoro is a little kid who's seeing crazy outrageous things and is being affected by it uh, I know the, the the liner notes in the criterion essay uh, quote uh, Ito at a certain point says how lucky it would be for a child to have a parent who'd wish for his death you know and that's a scene a sort of I guess I think about two-thirds three-quarters way through the movie where he's being upbraided for not showing enough care for his child and, and uh, putting the child in danger. And Ito's response seems to indicate that uh, the child will be and would have been better off to have been dead already rather than to have to continue enduring in this, in this awful realm that, uh, you know, he is on the path of trying to leave, but it's the, the demon path, the demon path to hell that is his chosen route. And, you know, there are other times where he sort of invokes the same, with the same gravity, you know, uh, my son and I are in this together. And there's there's no separation between the two of us and there's nothing that I can protect him from because his destiny is already settled. Whatever awaits us, awaits us both, is how he sees it. Mm. Even the, that scene at the beginning when Daguerre wanders off, he he's you then are reminded of those childlike yeah, sort of yeah. things that he's just attracted by these street performers and just sort of wanders off following them just because he's fascinated by these things. 
Um, and it, uh, of course, leads them into some danger uh, or gets them lost. But uh, oh. you are just constantly reminded that, yeah, he's just a child. <laughs> and he's exactly. in this really just crazy situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And actually, can I bring up, too, because this film has one of my favorite scenes. Yeah, that's uh, just uh, kind of... Was uh, when they're, they're, they go to pray in a temple. Uh, and all, all, there's all these uh, sort of, um, I don't know, ninjas or, or sort of, you know, assassins that are hiding in the temple. And they're literally sort of part of the woodwork. Yeah, that was and, a very effective. Yeah, it's quite an effective <laughs> scene because they just literally just pop out of nowhere. Their eyes just are part of the wall almost. And there's, there's a few scenes in some of the later films where they have really cool things like this. But then they kind of come out and attack him. And of course, Ito, you know, um, manages to fend them off. But as he's sort of um, amputating their limbs and, and sort of sending them on their way, they just keep coming. So they're even like sort of crawling on the ground and sort of oh. trying to bite him. <laughs> and all yeah. These yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty gruesome sequence there because you see all of these uh, recently amputated limbs just kind of sitting around on the floor while their, you know, former owners are, are squirming and flailing about and, you know, there are bloody stumps showing straight to the camera. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> pretty, it's again, not like, it's not like a zombie film or something. It's, no. it's something much more affecting about it because they do just kind of literally kind of pop out of nowhere and yeah. then they just kind of keep coming. And I guess just because of the, it's almost the simplicity of it, the makeup and just the setting because they're in like a sort of religious temple. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and these guys just literally just keep sort of coming at him even after they physically are unable to walk and things like mm -hmm. that. And it's mm -hmm. quite an affecting scene. Actually, I remember the first time I saw it just being completely blown away by it just because the atmosphere of it and the, you know, and I and I think it is that kind of extremity, the the gruesomeness of it, if you will, along with the the sexual stuff that we've already kind of referenced that that makes this film, you know, sort of the distinctive uh, sort of memory or impression I take away from it um, is just kind of how over the top it is in terms of that kind of you know hard R type of uh, you know. Uh, sequences and images and things of that sort and now jason you mentioned it's been a few weeks since you watched it uh what what's kind of your takeaway as you sort of think about you know this film and how it fits into the series and just kind of your own enjoyment uh thereof i mean i enjoyed it for sure yeah. um i tend to find myself uh being the the more lowbrow <laughs> type of fan <laughs> yeah. so when they kind of make these sort of plays, I'm all for that. Mm -hmm. I will say I rewatched the end um, this morning, I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. And it did have, I don't know how deep we want to get into it, but it had a really hardcore ending. Um, yeah. Compared yeah. to, you know, the other, the other three films so far when it comes to the heroism. And yeah. Let's talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, big, big battle sequence watches. Go yeah. ahead and take us right into it as we uh, kind of, you know, look at the ultimate showdown there. Well, it, it had the big bad battle sequence, but it was the ultimate uh, um, duel at the very end that, you know, so far with even excluding his gadgets, um, Ito has been darn near Superman 
you know, and so that, you know, he gets a scratch and he realizes that that means that that person must die. And mm -hmm. he stumbles away here with much worse than a scratch. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Right. Truly. He, he's truly human. I, I, to my memory for the first time. Well, yeah, because he's going directly toe to toe with Retsudo, mm -hmm. who is the you know leader of the rival Yagyu clan. He's mm -hmm. the crazy man with the, you know, blasted white hair and beard, and the massive eyebrows, and he's kind of the diabolical mastermind uh, behind all of the torments, or mm -hmm. almost all of them, that Ito and, and Daigoro have to go through. And this is the only time, I believe, in the whole series where they actually come to physical blows, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, uh, Ritsudo is kind of watching from a distance and putting his minions to in harm's way. Is I that? I believe so. I'm not entirely. Yeah, that is right for sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. Right. So, so right. So Ritsudo uh, gets a dagger right in the eyeball there, mm -hmm. and and uh, uh, Ito has a pretty massive scar along his back which we see pop up in the next film just to provide some continuity and likewise Ritsudo has an eye patch uh, over his right eye the rest of the series so you know so these are a sequence this isn't just uh, unrelated episodes there's mm -hmm. a, a longer narrative going on there uh, but you're right and and there was also we talked a little bit about the uh, you know the rival for the Shogun Executioner uh, Kanbei is it Kanbei Ganbei, one of those names Kanbei yeah, uh, Gunbei, right. So, but he loses an arm in their duel, uh, in their big showdown, and uh, asks to be killed. And it's a, again, it's a very good, well staged, mano a mano, you know, samurai duel uh, with all the posturing, the drawing of the sword, all of that. And you know, the the sequence ends up that that uh, Gunbei loses his arm. Uh, wants to die, and uh, Ito utters the immortal line, what's the point of killing someone who's already dead? Because he is, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, he's he's committed seppuku, right? His his head has been displayed on a stake there. It's been, been known that this guy's been gone and dead for a long time. So, you know, what more can I do to you than that? I mean, again, there's just kind of, to me, that's a pretty impressive little, I don't know, philosophical turn or fatalistic, uh, just a, uh, just an interesting observation on sure. uh, the meaning of life and death in that society. It's almost more of an insult to him, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You're, be you're beneath, yeah, you're beneath <laughs> me killing you, you know, uh, even though again, he was a very powerful and, and, and worthy rival, but he's been reduced to this. And, but also that guy, um, you know, says, I will get you, I, you know, I'm because he sees after, uh, you know, there's a whole battle kind of in that quarry or wherever, where he's gone into the daimyo and he's kind of exposed the corruption there. He sort of takes the daimyo hostage. They walk out of the castle and then, um, you know, into this kind of wild open space. And that's where the big battle ensues. So you've got, the son of Retsudo watching to see how Ito is going to do in surviving all of this. And then he makes this utterance that, yeah, I'll be back. I'm going to get you. And to me, that sort of felt like, okay, he's going to sort of take the place or he's going to be another level of pursuer. I mean, there was no, I did not know the first time I watched it, that Ritsudo was going to survive having a knife gouged you know, six <laughs> inches deep into his skull. I mean, he'd be losing an eye, but uh, you know, I thought it would probably be a little bit worse than that, uh, given the fact that so many 
other worthy warriors seem to be felled with just a swish of the blade. But all that aside, um, but he never really does return. Is am I correct in that? Um, uh, Gumbe doesn't. Um, no, he, right. He kind of he makes a promise that he's you know there's an implication that we're going to see him again. But I guess yeah, Did that, the, the film series didn't carry on it beyond the six films maybe they right. just never got back around to to bringing him back in yeah i i mean i would have thought he was going to be you know main villain in, in five and six you know i don't know if that struck any of you as kind of unusual that there was all the all the mechanics all the lifting had been put in place to uh you know set this one-armed swordsman as another rival but then maybe the thought was yeah one-armed swordsman who's already been beaten twice by uh, Ito probably doesn't make that good of an arch villain, so <laughs> maybe this is just empty bragging that uh, that 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 was all was it was it was meant to be. I'm not sure. Any other standout moments or overall assessments? What do you all think about uh, Baby Cart and Peril? One thing that's kind of I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, there's there's a there's a sort of upending of of what would be considered the normal order of society in all of these films mm-hmm. and one way and that's that's very strong in this one is you know there's a strong sort of class structure in this with samurai and the, their lords on the top and peasants and merchants below mm-hmm. but three groups are considered classless in this society and that's the ronin and yakuza and street mm-hmm. performers oh the entertainers yeah. yeah yeah so it's interesting that they're far more honorable mm-hmm. in this than than anyone mm. than anyone else like it's a very it's it's a it's a very purposeful upending of the way of the sure. what the order of things are supposed to be. Well, aren't movie makers kind of the descendants of those street entertainers anyway? So they they have a little bit of a bias in that. But that's a great observation for sure. Uh, but yeah, I definitely found this to be a pretty uh, satisfying film. Just a lot of memorable sequences, great action, um, and so this uh, Saito character, the the that guy that they got to direct it. Maybe that seemed to be a little bit more of his specialty. If you go to, um, in fact, he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. I had to go to IMDb to get his uh, director credits. He's got like 75 films to his name uh, on his list, something like that. Um, but none of them other than this one, I think, have made it into the Criterion Annals. So uh, we've talked a little bit about those journeyman Japanese directors. But did and, he maybe uh, direct one or two of those the Tauchi films? I don't know. Yeah, I think he did. Oh, did he do Zadoichi? Okay, well, there you go. I stand so. corrected. I, I think so, yeah. He was quite like, you know, he was... I, I think you bring an interesting point because I'm always fascinated. Uh, you said that the first four films were all released in, in one year. Yes. And and it's quite amazing in this period, like a lot of the, the Toei films, the... Um, uh, Fuka, um, Kinji Fukasaksu, sorry, I'm mm-hmm. just uh, tripping over my tongue at the minute. Mm-hmm. But but you know who I mean, uh, the Battles Without Honor and Humanity and Battle Royale, that guy. The, those, um, those films are amazing in the fact that they are so technically, like we talked a, a bit last time uh, in the last episode about the, the just the, the, real, the sheer technical quality and the, the art artistry that went into making these films but they used to turn these things around in an incredibly short periods of time mm-hmm. the, and it's just amazing the way that they used to i guess a lot of these studios literally had new films every week come out 
so yeah so right they've just got this full-time machine going of battles and action figures and uh all these interchangeable parts just kind of cranking them out almost like i I always find that fascinating the fact that Mm -hmm. like they made these four films the first four films that we've talked about were all made within the space of just a year yeah it's just incredible when especially when you look at the quality of them it's it's just uh, quite extraordinary really I, I think so. I mean, right to me, I, I do feel like these are these are you know worthy. I mean, they're not standalone films because they are part of a series and a franchise. But I don't feel like I'm just getting you know hack material. Now I don't know. Maybe if I watched a lot more of these types of movies or had more awareness of the surrounding context, I'd have a much better gauge as to whether this is like high level or or just kind of routine uh, filmmaking. But I, I I'm finding them all pretty compelling. Um, so let's go ahead and start talking about the next one here, which is uh, Baby Cart in the Land of Demons. Um, when you guys want to do a little synopsis, uh, what's what's basically going on with this one? This is where Misumi is back in the fold. And so to me, I do feel like we've got a little bit more of a, a slower paced, um, very artistic uh, shots uh, and, and kind of mood and atmosphere. Uh, not quite as kinetic as uh, Saito brought to, to his film. Uh, well, well, would you just like a sort of synopsis of the, of oh, the film? Oh, you know, we can we can take it however anybody wants. I mean, are there you know, if we want to do either a kind of a lead in or an outstanding scene or kind of just a quick summary? Well, I, I could certainly just give you a very very sort of high level synopsis sure. of the mm-hmm. of the film because I think again it's quite a good a good story. Um, uh, and again, it has a really great beginning, like we talked about. They always start these things off very with some very intriguing things, and in that uh, Ito is uh, wandering, and he starts getting attacked by these guys who are part from a, uh, I think they were called the Karada or Karuda clan, mm-hmm. who are, uh, you know, uh, they, they've sent these guys out basically to test. They want to they wanna hire Ito to... Um, perform an assassination but they don't just tell him what it is they put him through this sort of testing uh regime where they send these five chaps because his is the cost of his assassinations are 500 ryo mm-hmm. um uh, which they usually put in these nice little stacks of like these little yeah. little bricks right little yeah i don't know if they're like maybe like they're wrapped in paper like is it gold wrapped in paper or is it like something else i'm i'm, I'm not quite sure but they, they each, instead of just giving them the 500, they each of these guys give him 100 and they try and kill him. <laughs> yeah, they try nice to kill story. him. And then once uh, their their challenge is met and resisted and overcome, uh, then again, with their dying breath, <laughs> their <laughs> monologue, they, they go into a whole story of um, kind of what, you know, kind of breadcrumbs, if you will, of, of kind of where he you know, starts to get the feeling of, of this scandal that he's trying to, um, you know, understand and what his, uh, you know, well, the people who are hiring him, they, they see disaster coming onto this clan if this dreadful family secret gets out. And so they've got to find a way to get um, Ito you know, invested in carrying out this assassination, but, and I don't know, to me, it it feel like a little bit of a gimmick, you know, like 
they could have just it's like the most the most grueling job interview process of all time (laughs) (laughs) it's absolutely extraordinary Uh, and it does have again another one of those really great moments uh in the film where one of these chaps literally after uh ito uh, slices and dices him with his samurai sword and then does that great you know putting it back into his into its scabbard uh, this guy falls dying into a, a flame, like into a campfire, yeah. <laughs> and he sets and he basically gets set on fire. But rather than screaming and yelling like you would see normally in a film or or any situation where someone was set on fire, they would start to scream and yell and run around and and be in pain. But this guy has to go through with telling Ito that his part. <laughs> is part of the story so as he's slowly catching on fire and his skin is melting and he's in through gritted teeth he's telling ito the next part of this long (laughs) story (laughs) and it's just quite an amazing scene actually of this guy slowly burning to death he's Um, roasting absolutely but but there's no urgency he's going to take his time telling this story just the right way (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's quite an amazing moment. Like again, it's one of those things. The first time you see it, it's just like, whoa, that, that's pretty intense, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so should I catch on, or did you want to? I don't know. I think you had something you wanted to toss in no, there. I was uh, just going to say yes. that these guys are the slowest dyers I have ever seen on a film. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, oh, I'm fatally yeah. wounded, but I've got like three paragraphs of text. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, and again, just the there's this kind of in backwards logic. I mean, if if they do end up somehow killing the guy, there's another attempt to poison him. They you know give him some tea when it's hot, and and uh, you know Ito was presumably parched and needing something to refresh himself. Uh, you know, he he drinks the tea, he keels over, but he must have recognized it was poison because he was faking it, and then he spits it out on the guy. But so suppose any of their little challenges had passed, and they ended up killing him. Well, then what are they going to do? I mean, who's the next assassin on their list that they're going to try to recruit for for this job? So you know, it doesn't really make sense that you would you know, even on a fluke, take out the guy who you're de- desperately <laughs> relying on to preserve the family's honor. Yeah, you uh, would have thought at this stage his reputation would be preceding him a little bit. And I would yes. have thought that most people would know that he's kind of got the skill set that they yeah. need. Really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're not going to find a better assassin out there, right? Um, it's, and so the whole, the whole scheme here is to get him to... Uh, kill a, a, an abbot, a kind of like a high priest of the kind of local expression of Buddhism. Uh, and he's all decked out in robes, uh, you know, a, a living Buddha. He is, he is revered by, by his followers. And, you know, he seems to be the epitome of this grand wise old man. Um, but he's has in his possession, a letter indicating that one of the local daimyo has, um, disguised the illegitimate daughter of his relationship with a concubine as his son, who's the rightful prince and heir to this, of this domain. And, uh, if, if it's found out that the daimyo is substituting a girl, uh, to be the rightful heir and presenting this girl as a boy, uh, then that would dissolve the entire clan, all the retainers. I mean, you just have this, you know, surge of, of newly, uh, 
abandoned Ronan and everybody else who lives off of the status quo, uh, their lives would be thrown into into chaos uh, at the disclosure of this dreadful secret. Ah, and your classic Mulan ruse. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, and it's this, and it's the daimyo's weakness because he's so enamored with this concubine. Again, you know, the implication being he's he's pretty soft and pretty weak-willed and pretty indulgent, and 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 an offense to the you know the samurai and the and the shogunate's honor code, which is about discipline and and in self denial and manliness and, and all of that type of thing. And so, you know, it, it gets kind of elaborate. And I guess that's another part of the fun of these movies is, is seeing how convoluted the plots can get of, of who's chasing down who and for what reasons. Um, you know, the Abbot, I think there's also, there is that sort of, you know, a little bit deeper dive into Buddhism. Uh, when Ito first shows up to kill the Abbot, you know, the Abbot kind of gives him some classic Zen, you know, talk there. Uh, I have... Oh, I wish I had the quote here. I've uh, become, you know, sort of an integrated entity. You know, the inside is the outside. It's, it's a nice little word salad there, but it, it has that philosophical depth and resonance to it. And we kind of it kind of renders Ito powerless to carry out the assassination because there's nothing here in this kind of highly conceptual Zen portrayal he's already dead he, he he is beyond being killed so to speak and so yeah it is it's kind of a weird moment because eventually ito does come back and, and finishes his business there um but yeah that was it was a it was a cool moment that kind of just again triggers some of that more philosophical side of of the story um and then it gets into a, you know some some underwater stuff and you get to see some some other interesting gimmicks as again you've got the Yagyu clan is kind of following. You've got the masked lancers, uh, this kind of hit squad that's out there. Yeah, I mean, those guys are great. The, the yeah. ones that have the little sort of baskets over their heads. Sorry, mm-hmm. I hope that's not um, offensive to say that, but they, they, they've got these like sort of, um, what are they, wicker or something that they're over their heads. Yeah. And then, and then they, they always walk around with them like that. And then at the last minute, they all, in unison sort of flip them off yeah uh, yeah you know and then attack uh and they do that they're in several of the films aren't they they show up those those guys i wonder if there's some significance to that like again that that might be lost on on us uh, yeah yeah i don't know if this was a particular style of fighting or there was a particular sort of sect or or um a band uh, a school that practice this type of technique i mean if if these are completely fictional creations uh of quake and and kind of the the filmmaking team um they seem pretty convincing to me but i yeah i i I do wish i had a little bit more knowledge of the historical background i feel like i'm getting a glimpse into that society but i don't know how much of it is like strictly authentic obviously (laughs) some of the obvious elements that that have been amped up for entertainment and spectacle value those those are there but it it feels like yeah we're getting a glimpse into um some pretty strange and obscure schools of thought and and discipline and and technique that may have been around back in the 1700s in japan uh just the way different weapons are used and and brought into the mix here it's just a very interesting sort of visual uh, variety of types of characters and and uh, martial arts skills that are needed uh, 
in, yeah, in the there, there's other some of the yes. other guys they always have like these sort of animal masks don't they mm-hmm. where like sort of some of the you know some of them have like little what look like sort of fox noses and and they have little mustaches that look like they're kind of you know like uh, different animals and things mm-hmm. and again it is really fascinating because they have because quite a lot of visual appeal and like you say it, it'd be interesting to know whether they that has more sort of uh, cultural significance, like whether they represent certain sort of symbols in in, in a religious context or something like that. So, um, yeah. yeah. Well, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of flavor, there's a lot of color, and and a lot of visual stimulation. I think it makes it for pretty, you know, again, pretty engaging, pretty entertaining filmmaking. Um, let's talk about the other the the Daigoro adventure and this one here. Now, this one is in some ways pretty problematic, but also pretty intense and unforgettable. Mm-hmm. Uh, another situation where Daigoro um, gets separated from his father. He's wandering through the streets of kind of a, a marketplace area in what seems to be a pretty thriving city uh, of its of its time. Uh, lots of people walking back and forth, doing business at various booths. Uh, in, other, in other words, the kind of environment that's ripe for a pickpocket or a gang to, to do their thing. Uh, and this is a coordinated operation, uh, kind of brings to mind the Brisson film pickpocket, where it's not just one guy out there picking pockets and walking away. They're, they're passing them so that even if the pickpocket is apprehended, there's no evidence to show that they actually took anything when, when they're nabbed by somebody who says, my purse is gone, my, my wallet, whatever. Um, as it turns out, you know, we see there's this, another beautiful woman, Oyo, or Quick Change, I guess is maybe how she's referred to a nickname, because not only is she a very skilled pickpocket, she knows how to, you know, bump up against somebody, extract the goodies, and then pass it along. But she also changes um, robes so that it's not obvious that it's the same woman who's walking up and down the street. So she ends up in kind of a bit of a pickle because the person she's supposed to pass the wallet off to uh, is over around the corner taking a leak. <laughs> and so <laughs> uh, so she ends up, because she sees that she's been identified and is being pursued, she gives the uh, wallet to little Daigoro and says, don't tell, don't tell anybody. And uh, boy, talk about an obedient child. <laughs> a, kid, a kid who follows directions very well. Uh, he, he does, he's no snitch, right? And so he ends up... Um, getting caught uh, because there's another detective who's been kind of introduced into the situation. I mean, he's on, he's on the prowl. He knows that uh, quick changes here in the crowd somewhere. And he's looking to sort of, you know, complete his own destiny by bringing in this notorious uh, outlaw pickpocket. Um, is, he, is it that he's been on her trail for quite a while? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. He, he's been closing in the and this is the moment. This is where he, he's got her in the sights and he's going to, you know, take it, take it home and close this case once and for all. Uh, but they find the missing wallet, but it happens to be in Daigoro's hands. And because this detective is so hell bent on, on capturing the woman, uh, he orders Daigoro to be flogged, uh, so that the criminal will confess and uh, identify herself based on her sense of pity for this poor child who has done nothing to deserve the abuse that he's about to receive. How do you all respond to that scene? Uh, again, I, I say it could be problematic. I mean, if you, you know, child, young child nudity on film, 
extremely sadistic. Uh, it's not it's not portrayed in you know lurid detail. You don't see the naked body being whipped and bleeding, but he's laid out. And he takes a few blows. I mean, that's yikesy stuff, you know. Yeah, it kind of go, goes back to the the previous film and the talk about his his eyes and his. Uh, you know, his lack of fear. And I think it's uh, more like it's meant to be a demonstration again of that, you know, the fact that he's, he, uh, you know, takes on the persona of his father in that sense that he has no fear and he faces every danger and every peril with total, uh, you know, focus and, and, and the, you know, and he doesn't panic and he doesn't cry out. Right, and he, and he sticks to this code of honor because he's made a promise to this woman, and he sticks to it even right. to his own detriment. And she's so, a, she she does identify herself, and she says it's okay. You know, you can tell them. I mean, even with express permission, he's already said I'm not going to tell, so I'm not going to tell. And it's just like this, you know, almost superhuman stoicism and and focus yeah. and resolve that the kid has. So it does perhaps elevate him beyond uh, an ordinary or even extraordinary human being to be able to to withstand it but uh, he he keeps his mouth shut the whole time until the scene comes to its end after father and son are reunited uh richard and, and or jason his father doesn't do anything yeah, either, does oh, right. yeah he <laughs> just comes along and lets it play out <laughs> yeah 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 I, what do you think is the point there is it is it the father sort of watching his son stand up to the test uh does he want to lay low i mean it's i think it's again, more the former yeah, I, like, yeah. I, I don't i don't think he's you know i don't think it would cost him anything to say hey that's my son lay off right, right but i right. think he thinks you know his son's taken an oath and he's gonna stick with it and it's mm-hmm. not up to him to help him at this point yeah yeah that that's not the kind of thing i think i would see in a hollywood version of this no. story <laughs> just, just some high quality parenting is really what it comes down to <laughs> well, there is that implication that he's very proud of him at the end and there's well, almost sure. like it's, it's almost like a touching moment when they, yeah. when yeah. the boy is reunited with him and the, and he just it's it's a very subtle thing he just sticks out his hand and they yeah. they sort of join hands and and they they kind of hold that shot just for a moment kind right. of close up and it and it actually makes it quite touching and it sort of like shows that kind of bond between them uh, in a very um you know uh sort of poignant way but it's very subtle <laughs> yeah. well and, it's, Ito's like that's my boy you know it's like he just scored the yeah, win yeah. or something like that yeah. but it doesn't <laughs> oh, mean it's all gosh. done without words and without yeah. any sort of fuss or anything it's just oh. like this little and just in this single shot that they convey all that um, and I, I don't think he thinks he's any in any real danger either. No, no. Yeah, I mean, it, this is this is going to just happen, and then it's going to stop. And <laughs> right, they're not going to they're not going to beat him to death. And um, you know, I, let's face it, Ito's put his kid in much more harm's way than, <laughs> yes. than this. You know, so uh, you know, flogging builds character. I guess it's kind of a <laughs> <old> school. <laughs> that's the final lesson of this podcast. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the big Matt, takeaway there. Well, listeners, I when I was your age, when I was your age, the teachers would get out the yardstick. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I could tell those stories. I have told those stories. Actually. Oh, I've, I. That's not a surprise. It's happened to everybody. Well, sure. Of our generations. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it'd be totally unheard of today, thankfully. Yeah. But yeah, I think we're all in that sort of age bracket where we were just coming at the tail end of the yes. the corporal punishment. <laughs> yep, yep. No, thing. I definitely so, remember yeah. paddles in the fourth grade with little holes drilled in them so they would whistle as they came down. I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, a little detour down memory lane, listeners. There you go. <laughs> and there was this time I was in a market and a pickpocket handed me a wallet. <laughs> you're in at the game you know you're one of us now richard all <laughs> uh, right um yeah there's another i, I what do you think about the uh, underwater sequence where uh ito comes in it's it's a it's one of the more elaborate set pieces just because you know there i guess there was the sword fight in the in the stream by that waterfall in the first film uh, the flashing sword or in water technique or whatever. Uh, but this one here, we see uh, Ito stripped down to his uh, skivvies there, uh, his long hair flowing in the water as well. That was kind of a interesting visual uh, flourish. Uh, but he, he goes underwater uh, and, and the baby cart is even floating. So there's another trick that the baby cart does. Um, and we'll see some more of that as we proceed. Uh, but so there's Daigoro floating downstream in the baby cart. Armies surround both sides of the river, a heavily defended flotilla with the uh, abbot right in the middle there. He's got a couple of monks out front doing some chanting and you know, prayers and perhaps uh, you know entreating the gods for safety as, as they kind of make this passage. And the abbot has this incriminating letter, the letter that lays out this whole outrageous scandal and and the abbot's also a bit of a double agent. I guess he's part of a secret ninja network, and so even though he's seen as this uh, you know holy man, you know kind of above the fray and all of that, he's actually you know pretty dirty player and and very much you know up to his elbows and all of the intrigues and corruptions and power plays that that you know had happened at that level of society. So he's got the letter, and and so. Uh, Ito's objective here is to, to assassinate the abbot, also to get that letter, because that, that letter is almost more important than killing the abbot himself, and he cannot mount a full frontal assault on the ship, because there's just too many defenses around there for him to, to get all the way through. So, uh, what do you all think of the of the, of the the sequence there? He, he has to get underneath the boat, saws a little hole in the bottom and uh, takes him out. But uh, I thought there were some cool moments in that in that whole um, sequence as well. It, it kind of plays off that earlier bit that you mentioned when he tries to kill him and he's unable to. Uh, and so he has to do this kind of very uh, sort of James Bondy sort of uh, covert action. Yeah, I definitely felt like this was the thunderball of the Lone Wolf of the Cubs. They had that great bit too when the other guys all jump in after they've realized what happens and and some of the the soldiers or whatever they're sort of, um, you know, the the security guys kind of all jump in the water after him when they do the bit where there's just splashing on the surface. Yep. And then the bodies just float up. (laughs) Start bobbing around with pools of blood seeping out of them. Yeah. It's just, it's terrific though. It's like just very, uh, you know, very entertaining and very, quite just visually again, just like um, the, these really kind of clever little bits that they, they do constantly throughout the films that make them so much fun. Yeah, a total badass move there. So, um, and so after after the uh, letter is retrieved, then there's this 
kind of odd sequence where um, the letter ends up getting kind of destroyed, not not burned, but there's a there's a woman who's like up in the roof dripping water that makes the ink disappear. I mean, it's kind of a an elaborate conceit so that the letter stays intact, but it ends up revealing nothing. Um, who's got a hmm. better recollection of what that was all about than, well, than I, I do at the moment? Your recollection is probably better. I thought uh, <laughs> it was Degoro peeing on it. And no. It was no. just the way he was standing and like the way that, that it was cut together. Yeah, it well. It looked like he was taking a leak. Well, there was a piece where they they showed the ceiling and you could see a little drip of water coming out of the mm-hmm. ceiling. And there, and there was a voice, you know, speaking to Ito as he opened the letter. The, the voice said, open the letter. And then the water you see dripping down from the ceiling. but it, And then you can see the, the, what Af- the water that was a- actually was dripping was like, going up and down the page like there was presumably a hand or a stream mm-hmm. of some sort that was being directed and the way that the water just happened to fall it just kind of evaporated all of the ink and, and blanked out the word so that this elaborately you know sealed letter to be delivered to the daimyo himself um contain no, nothing there there is no information on it whatsoever but it does end up with another pretty classically and unforgettably brutal slaughter uh, as ito makes his way to the corrupt daimyo and proceeds to execute him uh, and his concubine uh, his presumed wife and this little girl who is um, you know being presented as as a boy as a prince um, and he takes them all out, and we see all of them beheaded, and we see their heads on display. It's like, yipes! <laughs> Again, pretty, pretty intense, but uh, you know, to me, pretty, pretty unforgettable sequence there, uh, as the sort of plot reaches its culmination. And the people who hired him end up having to fight him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's all really, you know, convoluted and 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 pretty warped when you know all the accounts are are resolved and settled. It's like, well, wow. it was that they, they hired him originally to steal the scroll, yeah. right? But then the other one of the women who's part of the clan comes to him and hires that's him to right. actually kill the uh, you know, the girl and the and the parents, right? Because so she recognizes the rightful heir can then step in, so right. so there is a sort of like two factions, even within the faction, so to speak, right? So right, the one. Like, yeah. yeah, the one group wanted to destroy the letter so that their secret could be kept, but then another person within the group said, no, their secret is too horrible, it should not be allowed to survive, and Ito takes that job. So even though he has killed the abbot, who, again, is a corrupt character who, who has it coming, you know, he even though he's, you know, uh, has the station of a, of a religious, uh, spiritual holy man, supposedly neutral, supposedly, you know, uh, more occupied on, on higher exalted things than, than earthly power and, and dominion, you, you see that he's not really serious about that part. He just plays plays the role. Uh, but it's a, it's a woman who recognizes the injustice of the of this poor young prince, this this noble child who's been imprisoned and is not getting the upbringing that his birthright entitles him to and who should be the rightful heir to the throne. Um, she says, you know, the, the current uh, rulers must die so that this this awful secret can be revealed and order can be restored. And Ito, you know, again, takes that job 
understands and respects the premises. And the woman, I looking it up here, her name is Shurnui. She's the one who hired Ito to, to kill the, the, that you know family of sorts, if you will. Uh, but then the final scene, which I thought was going to be the final walk away when when you see the baby cart on this beach uh, with the ocean behind him and these rugged mountains, it's like, why is he walking down that way? <laughs> like, what is at the end of this beach there that's going to take him to his next destination? But anyways, he, he runs into that same woman uh, who has uh, apparently quite appropriately committed seppuku herself now that her, her mission is done, justice has been restored. But again, because she acted outside of the order of things, it's not really her rightful place in society to order that kind of an assassination but she did it, but now she's sort of self-disciplining <laughs> in a way by committing seppuku on the beach there. And we see her in her uh, elegant kimono, you know, kind of stumble and slide into the wave uh, on the beach as Ito and Daigoro, you know, swim away, uh, or not swim away, but they're, they're in a boat uh, that he's rowing. And that's that's the end of the film. Um but yeah, what would you all think of the conclusions? Anybody have any particular reactions maybe to uh, Baby Cart in the Land of Demons altogether? Uh, can I just mention that one scene? Well, there's actually two great shots that I wanted yeah. to mention. You mentioned about the beach, and yeah. there's that great shot of Vito uh, mm-hmm. on a horse running down the Oh, beach yeah, yeah, a beautiful with, And, and yeah. Daguerre's in the, in the cart being pulled along by the horse, and you can see all the dirt getting kicked up in his face. Yeah. Uh, but he just looks like he's having so much fun. He's just obviously that must for a kid, that must have been a great moment. And, yeah. and Ito's hair is flowing. He's got his very long hair all flowing, like this big mane of hair. Yeah. And he looks quite svelte in this one, doesn't he? Like in some of the others, we've commented he's quite a stocky guy. I, I but for whatever reason, yeah. in this one, maybe because he's churning out like 18 movies a year, he's, <laughs> he's lost a bit of weight and he looks very sort of fit and 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 he has that swagger and stuff. Mm-hmm. So he comes he comes across quite like athletic and stuff in this film. I think. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that's a very heroic sequence. You're right. That that just that yeah. profile of him thundering down the beach on the back of that horse is yeah, it's cool. just a great moment actually, and that. Um, uh, the bit at the, uh, when the, the kind of climactic battle and all the, the, the guys who are going about to attack them, they put all their swords together and sort of reflect the sun so that when um, Ito and his group kind of come up the hill, the all the sunlight's in their eyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you remember that bit because it's quite a striking visual again. Like the, they just have lots of these really great moments of, of sort of quite um, quite stunning imagery and stuff that you see that really stand out. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely recognized, I, I mean, recognized maybe isn't the right word, but I, I appreciated what I'd learned about Misumi's style of filmmaking from the first three that we talked about last time. And, and I think that's what I sort of noted here as well. There just feels to be a little bit more of that serenity, kind of that kind of classical era Japanese, uh, the focus on architecture and, and atmosphere. Uh, you know, it's not a, entirely absent from the other two movies we're talking about today, but there there just seemed to be a little bit more of that uh, kind of uh, still type of pacing, you know, where there's stillness interrupted by big bursts of violence, whereas, you know, especially uh, Land of Peril, 
that felt a, a lot more like the second film, which is kind of more of that just nonstop bang, bang, you know, action sequence piled on top of the other. So, uh, yeah, this, this one here also, you know, struck me as, as a pretty strong entry. Um, what'd y'all think about it overall? Dumbest man in the entire series is the <laughs> Lord, the Lord who's trying to make his illegitimate child appear to be the heir. And he writes it all down in a letter and hands it to yeah. somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> I just have a little something I have to get off my chest here. Yeah. So, but keep it quiet, okay? Don't don't hang, tell it. Hang on to this letter where I admit everything, but don't show it to anyone, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. These are the, the 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 kind of logic here that kind of breaks down pretty quickly when you sort of step back and analyze what's going on. But of course, you got to have that MacGuffin that uh, everybody's after, mm-hmm. and uh, that kind of gets every everything you know geared up and, and unraveling. Jason, do you have any particular I, thoughts on this one? Here? I really appreciated the effects at the end, the beheading effects, because I've seen some really bad ones. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. And and then to have then the to rebuild the set so that the actors could sit in there, because the 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 final heads looked yeah were I mean didn't just look they were the actors yeah um, I just really appreciated that it was it, it was good it's not my favorite of them sure um but. I think it's actually my least favorite of them, but not okay. that it's, but not that it's a, a bad film by any stretch. No, no yeah. yeah if, if you have to rank them, yeah, you gotta, you know, put up yeah, it would certainly list there. Mm-hmm. be fairly low. It, it was enjoyable though. Sure. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get on to the final entry. The, the number six of six here. I'll Lone take this Cub, White Heaven and Hell. Okay, Jason, get into it. You seem already to get your snow skis on, so take us for a ride. <laughs> Listener. Yeah, I'm feeling just chilly just thinking about it. <laughs> Listener, have you ever thought, you know, I'm a big fan of The Spy Who Loved Me, but I wish there were I thousands know. of ninjas? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, if the last one yeah. was Thunderball, this is The Spy Who Loved Me. <laughs> Tune into White Heaven and Hell. Yeah. Um, also, if you're interested in watching uh, assassins juggle knives before assassinating yeah. people, <laughs> and who is tune it? in to White Heaven and Hell. Also, if you're into zombies, tune in to White Heaven and Hell. All right, oh, the, yeah. I, not to interrupt, Jason, but the, this film, I will just say up front that this film has the, the coolest villains yeah. of mm-hmm. all those, those the tunneling you know, the underground guys. Yeah. 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 This, I mean, honestly, that was the extent of what I was going to say. Sure, sure. As, as uh lone wolf and cubs movies go, um, the two stars are there and then everything else happens and it's crazy and it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, probably even more than the third one. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did my want to call the most bonkers, the trippiest, I mean the, the most, you know, out there on the edge and yeah i love it for it yeah it, it's loaded this with stuff yeah the most machine gunny uh, <laughs> of all of yeah. them the most people breaking through what appeared to be some sort of like moss sort of wall and then other people just getting shot to hell and standing up like nothing happened <laughs> And, and all two uh, outtakes from Shaft soundtrack. Oh well. my god, the soundtrack is perfect. Yeah, yeah literally the so best soundtrack awesome. of all of them. Yeah, it seems like they they kind of decided once for all just to move away more from the classical period music and just fully embrace their the nineteen seventy four ness of this film. Yeah, you know? I don't want to say that yeah. they gave up. I want to yeah. say that they took a direction that nobody else was interested in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and so here we are. We are at the film number six of the series. This was released in uh, let's see, uh, April of 1974. So this is the last one. Uh, uh, and and the Criterion notes kind of give the impression that, you know, some of the people involved at sort of at the decision-making level had begun to lose interest. Uh, perhaps there was just kind of a sense of, you know, we've kind of run our course and how much further do we want to take this? And there's also this uh, sort of a statement saying that Wakayama, the, the actor who played the lone wolf, had wanted to make a movie set in a snowy location. And so this was kind of like, let's just throw everything we've got at it and then, you know, be done because there were no more feature films made. There was a TV series, and I want to talk a little bit about that once we've kind of worked our way through this one here. Um, but, you know, the the marketing of the film and the reputation of the film really does emphasize the big snow, the battle in the snow. In fact, the opening scenes of the film, uh, you know, really are just a bit of a teaser for the end because we see uh, Ito and Daigoro on the sled. Uh, the, the baby cart's been made into a sled now. And uh, he's found this incredible downhill <laughs> slope that just goes and goes and goes because you never see him actually having to push the cart <laughs> up a hill or or do anything kind of slow and mundane. It's just, you know, there's some kind of cute, again, reminding us that Daigoro's a kid as he's seeing these weird shaped, weirdly shaped trees all covered with snow, vaguely looking like monsters, and he's covering his eyes and kind of mugging a little bit there. But yeah, so this is the introduction. We just sort of see, uh, like we've seen the baby cart you know, on, on skis, you know, being pulled across the beach or, or across desert sands. Uh, now, now we see it on skis on these really, you know, beautiful snowy slopes. Uh, but we're not really going to get back there for quite a while until the end of the film. Um, but yeah, so we, you know, we've got the, the setup here. Um, basically, uh, we, we see, you know, the, 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 yeah, the juggling assassin here. This is, this is Retsudo's daughter. Uh, he's got all these children that he's just sort of sending out there as sacrificial lambs. <laughs> uh, and, but in this one here, what a bizarre trial sequence. She has this three knife juggling technique where it's like, uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford used to say, "If the right one don't let get you, then the left one will." <laughs> and so, if if you stare at the knife that she's just tossed about fifteen feet up in the air, and it's going to be coming pointing straight down, uh, she's going to get you with one of her her handhelds as as you approach. Uh, and so, but for most part, you know, the attackers ignore the one that's been flipped up in the air, and it comes down, you know, right there in the middle of their skull. Her timing is just so exquisite and superhuman and all of that. <laughs> but but to make sure that she's got the credentials and can be trusted with this job, what does Rasudo do? He does. He has three of his sons challenge her. <laughs> and, and again, it's like, yeah, it, it, it has that kind of uh, intensely visceral effect as you're watching this, you yeah. know, trial here because each of the three sons goes down uh, right on cue <laughs> he goes, what do you yeah go ahead he goes full zap brannigan <laughs> okay uh, we have a problem and i'm prepared to send waves and waves of people against it mostly <laughs> <Honestly>, my children <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then he's just like well yeah. since all my kids are dead i think you ought to uh fix the problem yeah, right. Because she, she's kind of the last best hope there, and so she's going to go out. and And he, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, the casting director. Okay, 
wanted beautiful woman must juggle, you know, and, and, but they found her, she does a nice job and, and you can tell she's, she's actually doing some juggling there. I, I don't know if there's any special effects going on with the knives, but you know, and she's again, you know, got that pristine, you know, beautiful look, uh, but that seriousness of her eyes, just an intense, you know, killing machine that she's become uh, with her training. And now she is out there to avenge the family honor because Ritsudo is just seething with so much anger at uh, at the injustice uh, of Ito having, you know, been given the executioner position and all of that. So at this point, you know, it's like, almost like the motivations don't matter. This is just a, an arch bad guy who's just got it in for Ito no matter what. And he's going to send this daughter after him. Yeah. Okay. We, so yeah. So as as the young woman was getting ready to do her knife on the top of the head, uh, Daigoro had been placed on Ito's shoulders. Ito put his son up and used him as a shield uh, to prevent the young woman from you know driving her knife into his skull because her maternal instinct took over and she couldn't do that to the child. Uh, another interesting way of avoiding you know the terrible fate i i really like the fact nobody can step to the left exactly (laughs) um had so many callbacks to earlier films with uh daigoro putting on the mirror like rambo Mm -hmm. uh in order to blind her and then the sword underwater Uh, Mm um like this was actually kind of trying to wrap things up but then there's also some goofy stuff um i i kind of the way that I saw those was not so much that her maternal instinct took over was that um, Ito just said, okay, if I don't look, you know, she's going to throw the knife up and it's going to hit me in the head or like we in this situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I do go forward, she's just going to stab at me this other way. So he's like trying to t- decide how he's supposed to um, battle this, this, uh, woman without time kind of stands still for a minute. He has a little bullet time action where he decides how he's going to take this fight. Well, and so anyway, so, so that, that little sequence is wrapped up pretty quickly and, and, and she's dispatched and she's kind of like a, maybe even our token strong female assassin Mm -hmm. rival for this, for this part of the show. Um, but then we get into the the kind of the supernatural, the the spider clan or whatever, um, where it turns out Ritsudo has yet another son. <laughs> he, he, he keeps coming up with children here. Yeah, but, but this, this one's this, illegitimate. So. Illegitimate son who had been abandoned at five years of age and has been raised by this kind of esoteric cult. Uh, and this is again, yeah, we get into a lot of the theatrics here, the long pointy hats, the weird rituals, the three young men who had survived some kind of uh, death reenactment where they're buried alive for 42 days and come out with, you know, demonic supernatural powers that, among other things, allow them to tunnel underground kind of like human moles and so you see some weird effects of kind of the ground bulging and rippling as presumably one of these brothers or however they're related uh are are traveling around um kind of keeping an eye on ito as he makes his progress um and yeah so so that that whole kind of um subplot there involving some of the darker elements of uh you know 
Japanese paganism or whatever. That that was another sort of standout feature here that that I definitely enjoyed and was just curious to learn more about. But it certainly gives you the whole spooky, creepy factor uh, in spades in this particular mm-hmm. installment. Yeah, there's lots of great moments in it, and it does have. I think this is the only one really that has that kind of supernatural element to it, doesn't it? I don't think the other ones. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Not explicitly, no. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's quite it's quite uh, engaging. Those uh, that, those are kind of my favorite characters in this one. The the, the sort of the mole men, <laughs> <They're> <laughs> crazy, mm-hmm. crazy mole men who sort of you know creep into the ground and it just they kind of slither, don't they? And it's quite quite effective. Their insanely ruthless plan is wonderful too. It's not mm-hmm. like I'm going to kill you. It's if you talk to anybody, yeah, you're going to die. Well, that that was really the unique element because now it's like. It is. It is kind of tapping into something that created a, a sense of fear in in Ito, because he sees that they, they stop at an inn and uh, they order a little tray of tea and something to to nibble on, uh, but when they slide the door open, they see the woman who was serving them with an arrow through her neck and, and all bloodied up. And, and then the whole other person. That's right. right. <laughs> he realizes that everywhere they go, they're being watched. And that, yeah, that whole idea of uh, this kind of being a surveillance society, that also kind of stood out to me of just um, how how lethal and how paranoid everybody must have been. Again, in the first episode, I just talked about some of my, you know, fascination with this, you know, this this really diabolical code that just keeps everybody in check because you don't know who to trust any even perception of disloyalty could mean instant death and dishonor uh, torture etc and here's another example of you know there's somebody watching and so even though uh, they they could try to interfere and direct ito or even openly challenge him uh, their way of getting at him is now to make everybody that he comes into contact with suffer uh, and, and pay the price with their lives. And that actually serves as the pretext to what gets us up into the hilly snow country of northern Japan, because that's the other thing. Like, why would he go way up into this snowy wasteland? You know, what what's the point, you know? But, Without but a bro- proper coat. Well. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he's still wearing his basic <laughs> robe. I think he's got some, he's got some kind of boots on. Uh, you, you can see from time to time he's not going to be out there in his sandals and bare feet obviously a daigoro he is for what it's worth much better taken care of he's kind of wrapped up in this straw bundle there kind of cute little outfit but uh the reason that they go up into the snowy territory is because he realizes he's got to find a way to evade uh the uh the spying that's going on with, with these mole men. He, he's, he's definitely picked up on the fact that he's being watched and he's picked up on the fact that they're not that far behind him, uh, but he can't really shake him until he gets up into the snow. And one of the mole men says, yeah, the, that, you know, the snow makes it impossible for us to, to do our typical thing. They can't dig under the ground, presumably because it's frozen solid and that's too much for them to, you know, continue. So they have to sort of writhe across the snow and that's what leads everything to this, you know, hugely climactic snow battle, which is again probably the most, you know, well remembered scene, and perhaps one of the greatest feats of filmmaking as far as actually, you know, pulling off all of these stunts and the the scale and the logistics of it uh, are are pretty impressive. Even if, you know, in some ways, I think the battle sequence at the end is like 
the least satisfying part of the movie for me. You know, I mean, I, I, I like it and I'm impressed by it and it's definitely, you know, pretty heroic uh, commitment to playing out all those scenes in what must've been extremely cold conditions. In fact, I think that might've played a factor in Wakiyama deciding he just didn't want to do it anymore because <laughs> he was getting up there in years a little bit. He'd kind of thrown everything he had into this. And uh, it was, it was a, it was a pretty, good conclusion but i think there were just the earlier parts of the movie i think i just enjoyed more for the aesthetics and I, uh, david I, I could just jump in there because yeah, this do. afternoon i was reading some more of this arrow book that just yeah. um, you know the father son and sword by tom mez which is sort of a you know just a book all about the lone wolf and cub sort of franchise yeah. uh, and he does mention in it um that uh, wakiyama was apparently upset because it's quite interesting that the uh, Katsu Productions uh, got the film rights to the manga, but they didn't get the television rights. <laughs> so it's kind of weird that you would have thought that as part of the deal, they would have sealed up any sort of filming rights to the, to the property, but mm -hmm. they didn't. So then what mm -hmm. happened was a, a television company uh, pursued uh, producing a television series. Mm -hmm. And apparently that's why, Wakiyama walked away. The, the The intention was to make more films. Originally. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, but it, but they, he was so upset about the television series that mm -hmm. that he basically just threw his toys out of the pram and and said, "I'm not doing it anymore." Then, <laughs> go ahead, Richard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he walked away, and then this, the the TV producers kind of balked. Like, well, we kind of wanted the films, so they offered him the part in the series, and he just he was done. He, yeah, he wouldn't do it anymore well and like i said I, you know previously I, I just you know i haven't had a chance to watch the tv series and i'm not sure we're completely done with white heaven and hell exactly yet there might be some other things to say about it but um i just felt like the tv series given the intensity and the the, the violence and, and all the other elements of the films uh how much of that is lost because you have to put on tv the public airwaves and again maybe japanese tv was willing to allow a little bit more of that type of thing than the 70s tv i remember as a kid they, here in they, the they USA. definitely are they definitely yeah. do okay it, so the blood spurts and that kind of thing we're okay for that it's for toned TV down at that time? It's, it's toned, toned down, down but it's sure. shared there's some nudity okay. and there's some violence <laughs> okay 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 well i mean because yeah it just feels like it would just be too neutered to just take all those elements out there i mean that's not the only thing i watch these movies for or that i enjoy about them but it would just feel like there's huge missing pieces to make this a just a weekly episodic thing um but that might also explain why uh the movie turns out to be a bit of an anti-climax after so much hype being built up like this was the big one this is the ultimate showdown and especially with hindsight now we all know that film six is the end of the series uh were any of you guys particularly disappointed at the way that ritsudo just ends up kind of <laughs> sliding off off screen uh on his sled vowing to get his vengeance one day it's like dude you just threw your best shot at it i mean do you you got another child somewhere <laughs> that we haven't heard about yeah. yet but, definitely <laughs> run out of kids at this point <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but was that a was that a hindrance to anybody as far as how it didn't really wind up in the the final finale this top of all uh well, it does make out. you feel like like you know what could have been like if there'd been more films you know because mm -hmm. because i love them so much that i yeah. think you know it'd be it's a nice idea that we maybe would have got 
three or four more or something would have been fantastic. But at the same time, I, I think the ending is fairly satisfying because it feels a bit like an ending because like we've just said, uh, Ritsudo's run out of kids, his sort of clan has been disgraced and uh, dispersed and dispatched and there's no one left right. except Rasudo who kind of recedes off into the distance, you know, like a madman going, I'll get you. I'll get you. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's yeah. very much what it winds up. It's just the yeah. sputterings, old man shakes fist at cloud type of thing. And it has a nice ending too with the boy because the, there, again, we have all this carnage and, and this sort of battlefield with all this death and destruction. And, and then we have this nice moment of, of Ito, looking for his son amongst the you know the carnage there that's left and then they are reunited at the end and it kind of feels almost like uh i mean this is just the way i take it i guess is that i just kind of take it as okay that's the end now and now they can go and actually maybe go off and have a some sort of a proper life after this now because retsudo is more or less beaten hmm. you know uh, but you know so I guess I, what I'm trying to say is I guess it, it, it can work as a satisfying conclusion to the series, but there's also that sort of, you know, feeling of like what could have been if they'd, if they'd gone on to produce a few more. Yeah, the manga does end with them. I won't, I won't spoil it for folks, but they do fight directly. Yeah, yeah, in, in the manga, right. Yeah. But that had not even been written by the time of this movie. So that's another reason maybe yeah. to not do the final ultimate showdown. So, yeah, it may seem like a bit of a of an anticlimax or a missed opportunity to some. Uh, but I think, you know, there is also kind of that open-endedness, which is which is kind of cool that, you know, the, the villain is still out there um, and uh, the demon path to hell is not reached its ultimate conclusion quite yet um but the the way the film does wind up is again the the tenderness of father and son you know which i thought was a pretty nice little gracious uh parting of the ways uh to, to wrap up uh this this aspect of the series uh in, in the cinematic adaptation of this original story are there other pieces that we want to um you know focus on before we wrap up our conversation today we should probably just say it's a it's a different director again, but he, he's he's, yeah. far, he's not a super interesting figure. Yeah. Anything more to say about it than that, or that pretty much the, <laughs> he, I, he he did like a, a <laughs> he worked with Masumi before. He was an assistant okay. on a film that uh, a life story of the Buddha that Masumi made, and he was mm -hmm. like the effects director on one of the, on the Daimajin series that Masumi directed one of. But he was a bit more of a TV director than than the than the other guys. He there's this big box that I haven't gotten it myself called Yokai Monsters, yeah. and he did a oh, couple yeah. of those. So okay. yeah, yeah what do y'all know yeah. about those films? Uh, uh, that's terrific. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's almost his only film credits. Before that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, they're, those are really good films. I've watched the first two, I think, and from that set, and they were excellent kids movies. Um, I'd recommend him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. the 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 arrow, the uh, Daimajin and the and the yokai monster sets mm -hmm. are definitely they're they're sort of essential. I would yeah. say if you're a Japanese genre fan, you definitely want to get those sets because they're 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 terrific films. 
I saw a very power, po- powerful and positive response when that set was released. I haven't gotten it. I don't think I will, but that I was pretty impressed just by the reaction. Yeah. Yes. They're, they're great. It's, but it's to go fun. back to say, to, to be fair, like this film is really well made. And mm-hmm. I think the director tries to kind of emulate Masumi's style that it mm-hmm. kind of can set in the other films. So, so it does kind of fit in visually and, uh, you know, with the other films, it doesn't kind of stick out uh, in any way. Uh, I, I don't think. I mean, no. It, it's I would a little imagine more if you looking. didn't know any better, you could assume that it was directed by the same person because it's still got those nice little touches and mm. some great visual moments, and and uh, it kind of fits in with the others. So, I agree. Cool. I will say though that I have found um, Akihiro. Tamakawa uh, Dayagoro on Facebook. Oh, no way. And no, really? He is <laughs> as middle age as possible. Okay. Um, okay. I'm scrolling through his stuff now, right? Uh, and there's a lot of cat pictures and food pictures. Oh, wow. um, however, I learned that he's from Hiroshima or Hiroshima, excuse me. Mm. And his, he told a story about his grandmother. Um, who had lived through the bombs, and it was really interesting. Hmm. Send me that link. I'd, I'd like to follow sure. up and for, yeah, because yeah. again, this kid was put through some pretty crazy stuff. I mean, even as a child, acting and watching—I don't know how, how many of the decapitations and stuff. But I'm even thinking about himself. I mean, you see body mm-hmm. parts, and he's pretty much put out there, and it's just—it's just quite a remarkable role for a child actor. Again, um, situations that I just don't think child actors were really put into with the kind of regularity that he experienced over the course of a couple of years, at least, of his very young life, uh, making these really, you know, off the chain, you know, action uh, battle movies. Um, that's just quite an interesting experience to have as shaping one's childhood, I would say. You know, oh, I mean, definitely. Just leave it at that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not going to say that he goes the, into that kind of stuff, but yeah, so yeah. far. He would have seen all the, you know, because we see all the gory sort of sword fights and everything, but he would have saw the, the day-to-day sort of grind of the filmmaking, you know, the yeah. setting up the shots and the, all that. So hopefully um, he wasn't scarred too badly by all that. Right all the sort of the, the, the content. Um, it does mention him in the book because I couldn't find any sort of biographical information about him at all. I think I mentioned last time, but mm-hmm. in the book, there is just a little short footnote about him and the chap who played Daigoro yeah. in the TV series. And apparently they both fell foul of the law uh, later on in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, the, the Daigoro from the film's uh, his does, doesn't sound like it was quite so serious. He tried to smuggle a weapon through customs or something like that. So he ended up uh, getting in trouble for that. Sure, three Whereas years the three. other boy actually, I think, murdered someone, didn't he, Richard? I, yeah, I he did. He went serving a life sentence in jail. Yeah, gosh. So, so that's uh, so that's interesting. But it's interesting that he's on Facebook and that it's it's good that he's mm-hmm. uh, you know leading a nice normal life and he's. In, Enjoying his cats and stuff. I like yeah. the sound of that. Like sharing anime and just like the most um, midlifer as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, midlife comes to us all. It, it does. 
I mean, his hair is not braid, so that's worth something, right? I guess he must literally be my age, really, because he yeah. would be, if this was the early 70s and he was about three or four, mm -hmm. then he literally would be kind of my age. So I looked him up and noticed he's exactly my age. Oh, well, like to the day. No, no, not to the day, but <laughs> to the year. <laughs> that's that's really cool. Yeah, I just I see the link that you just sent, Jason. So, thanks for providing that. So, yeah, my my personal time is running short here. I've got to take yeah. care of some other business. So, uh, any last thoughts on White Heaven and Hell, or just the series as a whole? I mean, I, this movie has a lot going for it, and I'm not sure we completely covered all of the uh, standout elements, but I think we've given a pretty good conversation, anyways. But yeah, anybody have any final thoughts on on that? I will say that it's absolutely worth it. Um, some t I don't want to ever say Criterion's hit and miss. I've never really seen right. a bad one. Right. Um, but this, I really, truly appreciated that that they took a chance on this one mm -hmm. and put it out there in, in such a glorious package that it is. Yeah. Beautiful transfers as well. Mm -hmm. And just like some good contextual material. And I, and I would just say to people that because if they have a perception of these films as just, I mean, they are exploitation movies in a sense. They're just entertaining sort of action films and they are a little bit over the top in places. But I think like we've talked about, I hope we've conveyed that there is a lot of layers to these as well mm -hmm. and that they've got a lot going on and a lot of interesting elements. And uh, so aside from just the entertainment value and the, uh, and the more sort of uh, kind of grindhouse elements to them. They, they are really strong, uh, interesting um, films that are definitely worth checking out. Uh, uh, so I, I highly recommend them to anyone. I think they're fantastic. I love the whole series. And it's one case where as a series, they work together really well. Um, Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, I think they they tell a story that's that's truly epic in scale, and I think it you know even perhaps more so than the Zadoichi series, even though I haven't gotten all the way to the very end. But it feels like yeah, there's a big saga that plays itself out here. Again, you know the manga does have a final final showdown between Retsudo and Ito, um, but uh, the movie kind of keeps things open ended. But it just takes us into such you know interesting territory, and it does feel like maybe you know there's some some a positive side and the fact that it doesn't feel like the series ever runs out of steam or gets into pure hackery. Uh, I, I feel like there's integrity and substance and there's a good reason beyond just, you know, sheer profit motive for uh, adding each new film to the sequence. And so, yeah, to me, it, it, this, this feels like, um, you know, a, a six part series that, that earned every, every minute of it you know these films are not real long so they're not a huge commitment some of them running just over 80 minutes so really and they, uh, they pretty... really stand out well to repeat mm -hmm. viewing as well yeah, exactly like, yeah. i would mm -hmm. say i watched the last three this week again even mm -hmm. though we, i just watched them a couple of weeks ago in preparation and i still found myself totally engaged and drawn into them and noticing new bits uh, every time like little elements and things that maybe I didn't pick up on before. So they really hold up well. They're the kind of films you can just stick on anytime and just find, you know, be entertained and, and uh, uh, sort of engaged with them. So definitely yeah. worth owning, definitely worth having in the, in a collection. Totally to, agree. To have access to. 
I don't know of any streaming services that have these films on at the moment, even like Arrow and things like that. They none of them seem well, to have these. They're on, on the so. Criterion Channel. Oh, they, oh, well, sorry, I, we don't have that here in the yeah. UK. So ah, I, gotcha. I don't know, but but uh, so I'd say definitely in the UK, the only way to watch them is to get the, you know, get them on. Uh, Blu-ray or DVD. So. David, I know Criterion has a line of of Blu-rays that are kind of UK specific. Um, mm-hmm. Did Lone Wolf and Cub come out on the UK version of Criterion, or is that uh, they? The they do, yeah, they do. They, oh, they, that's great. It okay. is available in the UK and the Godzilla set, which is another yep. Toho set. They're oh, both um, available in Criterion UK. Yeah, uh, I've never really and, been able to figure out what's the criteria. No pun intended. To say that, that they can. Re- I mean, I'm sure it just comes directly down to rights but are there certain yeah. titles that you know they kind of really push hard to make sure that gets the british release versus others so i i i, well, I, I know the from british releases seem to be that they, they don't do as many like yeah, they right. usually only do a couple a month and and a lot of them are just sort of back uh back catalog and they seem to concentrate a lot on sony stuff or janice stuff because okay. they obviously yeah. have the the distribution rights um, but I would imagine that going forward, if Criterion are negotiating for any films, they're probably getting rights for U.S. and U.K. as well now, mm-hmm. you know, so that they can do both. So a lot of things uh, sort of seem to pop up, but they take a bit longer. Like if they come out in um, in the U.S., it might take six months or a year before they come out over here. So. I like to imagine that the folks at Arrow are constantly like given the side eye to criterion yeah. <laughs> well it yeah the, mine. The, well you know right and that there's i'm sure you know they have a common mission and there's a friendly rivalry but then there's times when it's like sir you are stepping on my toes you know yeah, exactly. so. <laughs> all right well this has been a great conversation yeah. I, and i do feel like you know we've we've done good coverage but yeah there's probably elements of the films that maybe we didn't touch on maybe if there's any listeners out there who want to say yeah but what about this or that you know there, there's probably going to be those moments but uh i give it my highest recommendation as well mm-hmm. um and so i i do appreciate folks listening in and accompanying us on this journey i think i'll start shifting my attention in other ways than the demon path to hell so thanks <laughs> for the you know the, the the detour guys but uh yeah, i might definitely things. take a break from samurais for a few weeks you know? yeah <laughs> all right well my next episode is in a little bit to be determined um uh last weekend i recorded a inside the box episode with trevor uh barrett uh we talked about the louis benwell set the three films uh, uh, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie the phantom of liberty and that obscure object of desire that should be coming up pretty soon i don't know if trevor's been able to do editing this weekend or what but anyways that's coming up soon from me and then i'm going to be kind of putting this podcast on a little bit of the end of the year hiatus i usually do in december as i watch as many of this year's releases as possible in preparation for our annual year-end favorite films uh episode of criterion cast so we've got a group of guys uh the regulars on the on the network there who will be getting together folks like aaron west and trevor and and uh, jill blake i think is going to try to join us and a few others sort of still putting the plans together for that we'll be having a a year-end episode looking at the 2021 releases from the criterion collection and then i'll be coming back uh probably presumably early january uh with uh with 
continuing my coverage of 1972 as we get away from these uh, omnibus series into some <laughs> discussions of individual films. So still putting my calendar together for that. So I'm not even going to announce a title quite at the moment, but hang in there. I'll be back uh, sometime in early 2022. Uh, so guys, again, thanks for your time today. Thanks for all your insight. I've always enjoyed it and uh, definitely had a good time this afternoon. So uh, listeners real quick yes. before he cuts us off, just because sure. I know you're concerned. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, for the first time in 10 years, Michigan beat Ohio State. <laughs> yes, um, indeed. Yeah, I, yeah I sad day for us all. Well, uh, <laughs> present company accepted. Yeah, no, it's, it's, there's a party gown on outside. So, oh, yeah, I but about that for a second. <laughs> fantastic. Well, thank you for the update, uh, as I'm sure it's pretty old news by the time this one gets oh, out there sure. but yeah definitely fun times okay guys i'll call it a day and uh we'll talk to you all soon sounds good thank you very much for having us Thanks, guys. Right. Yeah. Speak to you soon.